you know we're we're still very much bound by this idea of um civilizing our populations to be secular moderns uh that's what it was you know from the crusades to gather the holy lands back um from these you know marauding racialized hordes to today and we see that you know in terms of kind of protection of churches and protection of public space Salams, peace and blessings. You're listening to Breaking Binaries Season 2 with me, your host, Sahaima Manzil Khan, known online as the Brown Hijabi. As a society, we're obsessed with explaining our world through the use of straightforward opposing categories. So, good or bad, moderate or radical, pretty or ugly, victim or villain, the list goes on. All these sets of binaries, though, tend to be quite superficial, and they hide the real complexities, the politics and the nuances of how we've been encouraged to think. Following from the conversations of season one, every episode this series, I'll be sitting down with a different friend to break down, break apart, and interrogate a different binary and see how doing so helps us think more critically about ourselves and our world, and therefore, how we transform it. In this episode, I spoke to Dr. Soraya Jivraj, and we had a really exciting conversation. I think primarily because her background is so wide in terms of the interest that she has, So she doesn't come specifically or primarily from an academic background. She has experience working for international NGOs, for grassroots organisations and in the field of law. But she is also an academic and the book that is worth mentioning for this particular episode is what she wrote on the religion of law, race, citizenship and children's belonging. And what she's really interested in is, is essentially this binary itself, secularism and religion and how those two terms are used to regulate people through government law and policy. She's also interested in decolonizing work. I met her through the collaboration that she did with her students at the University of Kent to create a manifesto for decolonizing. She was formerly the co-director of the Centre for Sexuality, Race and Gender Justice. She's also the co-coordinator and principal investigator of the AHRC Decolonizing Sexualities Network. She's a reader in law and social justice and a senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy. There's so much more that we could say about her. And her current work is primarily focused on collaborating with Muslim women-led initiatives on gender and race and religion inequalities from a decolonial approach. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I'm really thrilled that we got to break down this binary as I think it's one that has too big of an impact on our lives. Let me know how you find it. Today I'm joined by Dr. Soraya Jivraj. Uh, I'm so happy to finally have you here. Thank you so much for for making the time. How are you doing today? Alhamdulillah, it's my pleasure to be with you as always. So Hema, you know I'm a big I'm a big fan, and um, I'm I'm doing well. Thank you. Yeah, in such tough times, I'm feeling actually really grateful for you know the safety that I have. So yes, thank you. I'm doing. Alhamdulillah, well. that's really good to hear. Um, yeah, we, so we've been meaning to talk about this particular binary actually for a long, long time, maybe over a year, in fact. Yeah, I think we have. Gonna... my favourite subject. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm actually really excited. And I, I kind of feel like this, this particular episode could be really meaningful for a lot of people. The binary we're going to look at today is secularism and religion. And I kind of feel that even lots of listeners who may have sort of agreed with the binaries that we broke down, or maybe been able to follow the binaries that we've broken down previously. You know, even this season, we've had um, free speech and censorship, fascism, liberalism. We've had in the past innocence and guilt, all these kinds of themes. But I kind of feel that secularism and religion is one thing that isn't often broken down, even by people who think quite critically about those other sort of binaries that are built within, you know, the colonial world that we live in. This is also a binary that underpinned the first time that we met, <laughs> um, properly, formally. And um, what I mean by that is that we, we were having, we were invited to have a conversation around secularism. And I wondered if you wanted to talk about that event a bit because you were a co-organizer and perhaps it sets the scene as well about how you're approaching this and coming to this topic. Sure, yes. Um, so we met at an uh, event that I was co-organizing with the Inclusive Mosque uh, Initiative in December 2018. Um, And that event, as you know, was called Beyond the Promise of Secularism. 
And it was really a way of bringing together work and activism uh, by women, uh, Muslim women predominantly, who'd been doing, uh, you know, amazing work breaking down this binary because as you say uh you know it's it's one that even critical thinkers and activists just don't get into and there's reasons for that but um yeah i think you know we felt that it was really a time to start getting into it and provide a safe space i think primarily for people who felt caught in that binary so you know if you especially if you're experiencing things like islamophobia and you know intersecting with anti-black racism as a muslim woman um so you know all of those things we really wanted to provide a safe space for people to um explore those issues without without really being attacked for it what spurred us really is um this other event that was happening entitled Sharia Segregation and Secularism, in which, you know, a coalition of quite established, well-known feminists were coming together, especially to emphasize, um, well, it was under the banner of this organization called One Law for All. And so what they're essentially calling for is, you know, um, secular law as opposed to divine law. That's what they created this manifesto and that's actually in their manifesto, claiming the, the primary argument that secularism is important as a minimum precondition for equality. So equality, women's rights, etc., are all predicated on this notion of secularism. Uh, and for me, that's, you know, that's hugely problematic. It it just hides a whole host of <laughs> other evils that doesn't really allow us to get to the heart of the matter of dealing with the actual issues that, you know, they want to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Even that title, right? Like um, Sharia segregation and secularism. I think it ties together um, the way that perhaps secularism is framed to us. And I think you know, I often begin these episodes with thinking about how these concepts, first of all, are presented on their own terms to us. And just thinking about, you know, growing up and, and being at school, um, there was definitely a notion that like secularism is straightforwardly a really good thing. And as you say, it's kind of presented as the precondition for those other good things like equality and freedom and, um, you know, yeah, women's rights, uh, um, rights of marginalized people in general. And I think that even for, for me at a very young age, that was sort of confusing because there was also this notion that secularism is about separation of church and state. And yet at the school that I was going to, you know, state school, you know, we sang hymns every morning. We did, went to trip, on trips to the church every Christmas. Like it was a very, it was a Christian secularism, right? It was like, there was, it was a kind of confusing uh, notion of, of what, what it was. And so I just think it's interesting that in that title, it's also pitted very clearly against Islam and, and Muslims, uh, or like this notion of Muslim Sharia law specifically. That's just a reflection I have. And I wonder if that was also an impetus for setting up the event that you set up in that instance. Absolutely, because, you know, the lived realities of all women who come from um, or who have faith um, uh, in their backgrounds, in their families, their own personal faith and belief systems, um, you know, cultural backgrounds from communities of colour. The lived experience is much more nuanced and complex than what is caught by these terms, religion and secularism. So, the the sufferings that you know women in particular but also you know queer and trans people will be uh experiencing in our communities cannot be straightforwardly solved by this notion and i'll just read it to you if i may number 10 in their manifesto the one the one law for all manifesto that the recognition that secularism is a basic human right and a minimum precondition for women's and minority rights. And as wow. you say, exactly. And as you say, that totally feeds into even at a school level, primary school level. I mean, I've got a child who's primary school level, you know, British values that they're universal and that's where all this power comes in. And you talked about kind of Christian secularity. And yeah, exactly. That's what, you know, I refer to in my work as the post-secular, where it's not really secularity at all, because there's nothing free of Christianity. It's in all our kind of universalist thinking around human rights, etc. So where they talk about unchangeable divine laws in the first um of their points in their manifesto. I mean, that's just, it's, it's inaccurate. 
Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, they're very easy examples we can point to today. You know, in recent news, there's been uh, the sort of reaction, I guess, of the French government to Muslims uh, within France. And this is all within a framework of, you know, Muslims just pose a problem to secularism. And that really what that means is that they pose a problem to freedom. They can't coexist with, as you say, women's rights, with rights of queer people, with with, with people having, <laughs> I suppose, what's then made out to be what's something that's inherent to France, to the West, which is freedom and rights of these people that we know at the same time, like women and queer people are killed, deported, you know, violated, exploited in the West. So I think that's a helpful beginning point um, because you've given us a lot of space there to see that there's lots of cracks and fissures. So I wonder if I can ask you more directly, you know, what perhaps is one of the, or the central uh, underpinning assumption that can help us to pick apart, I guess, this notion that secular uh, or secularism and religion are opposites? Because I think that's something that's really at play here. On the one hand, we have secularism that's free and great and brilliant. And then we have religion, which is, you know, even I remember growing up, people would always say, and I kind of felt like I had to concede that, you know, religion at the end of the day is just the source of all violence. And I, and you can't, and it kind of felt like this really debilitating failure of religion, right? As opposed to this really fresh and kind of peaceful secularism. So anyway, I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit later as well. But yeah, what for you is the central assumption or, the, or a way in to begin unpicking this? Yeah, so, you know, I'm really privileged to sort of have a, a place uh, within um, the academy universities where I have space to think about these things. I mean, I haven't always been uh, an academic. I was uh, a practitioner, a lawyer, and um, I worked on the Equality Act and bringing this idea that um, you could bring the different strands of equality together because, as you know, we have kind of nine protected characteristics now. Um, at the time, it was kind of race, gender, disability, and religion wasn't on the radar at all. So this was a new um, ground of anti-discrimination that was being brought through uh, EU law at the time. And so that gave rise to the Equality Act. And that really got me into thinking about religion because, you know, in practitioner circles, no one, everyone just thought they assumed to know what it was. <laughs> Here's, you know, the British state making new legislation, including anti-discrimination on on, of religion on the basis that they knew what this term was. I mean, it's actually pretty scary. And that kind of gave me a real kind of ethical crisis, which is how I actually ended up in, in uh, academia to really think about this. And so I put a lot of um, time and thought into uh, researching just the term religion, you know, <laughs> that's that's how I kind of came to be a religion geek. And, you know, I came across the fantastic work of people like Talal Asad, um, who's, you know, written books on the genealogy of the terms religion and secularism. And he makes a really, I mean, his work is very textured, but he makes actually a really very simple argument. And that is that we understand these terms as if they they're transhistorical. That's the term he uses, meaning that, you know, they they are used as if they don't actually come out of a particular historic period. So, so they've just been around for all time, forever. Yeah, exactly. So we need to actually pay attention to how this word emerged, when it emerged, how it developed. And then when we do that, we realize that actually it's got a very specific history within Europe, right? And the European Academy. And the same with secularity. So, you know, the post-colonial uh, scholar Homi Baba, he says that the trouble with concepts like secularism is that we think we understand them too well. We may define them in different ways, assume different political or moral positions in relation to them. But the bottom line is that they seem natural to us as if they are instinctive. You know, they are a truth in and of themselves, but that's just not accurate. Again, I come back to this idea of accuracy. It's just not accurate, right? But that's really interesting because I don't think people would um, 
you, I don't think people would assume that the way that this binary is false is almost just because it's inaccurate, right? Like I, you kind of assume there's going to be an ideological thrust here. But I think what you're saying is really interesting that if we simply look at history and we kind of look at the emergence of these terms, there's a lot we can learn there. And I wonder, can you can you give us a bit of an insight into that emergence? And are those was the emergence of religion and secularism actually um I guess, connected? Was it that they came about in a similar period or are these completely separate ideas? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, in these times, it would be kind of decolonizing religion, wouldn't it? <laughs> because we're decolonizing everything, which is a good thing, as long as we're doing it, you know, thoroughly and um, ethically. Um, so, you know, if we start with the secularism thesis, as it's kind of known, it's this idea of separation of religious institutions, namely the church from state institutions, namely parliament and courts. And, you know, the kind of post-enlightenment theorists would refer to this as uh, disestablishment, i.e. that we don't have an established church anymore. Of course, that's not the case in in Britain in the UK because we do have um, a state church, but that's that's a different that's another story. Um, <laughs> but I guess that's already a fissure, though. Yeah, exactly. That's already a kind of inherent contradiction, as as we have so many in this country. But you know. Um, at the same time or flowing from that is this idea that the public sphere um, is free of religion, right? And religion is then designated or delegated to the private sphere, the home. That's kind of where we celebrate religious festivals, apart from Christmas, of course, mm. um, which comes back to your hymns and stuff at school. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that this is important. Why? Because it offers protection for both believers and non-believers through this idea of religious freedom. You know, and this this is really the kind of fundamental premise that's put forward by organizations like the National Secular Society. Um, and it comes back to where we started our conversation, which is kind of it addresses concerns around the control and power of religious authorities over, for example, women's bodies, family, education, sexuality, freedom of speech, etc., but of course, you know, straight away we kind of hit upon problems and that then goes back to what Assad talks about in terms of understanding where this term uh, comes from. And it comes, of course, from Enlightenment Europe where, um, you know, there was uh, a backlash or a movement against the kind of despotic powers of the Catholic Church um, and, uh, you know, a break away from Catholicism by a kind of Northern European uh, uh, Protestantism. But then later on, of course, you get a break away from that. And so you get this idea that secular reason is based on knowledge of nature, whereas religions are based on faith in, you know, quote unquote, supernatural entities. Hmm. So there's also like a value judgment here that begins to develop. Exactly. And, you know, you can kind of, to be fair, you can see how it emerges from this kind of very despotic, dogmatic ideology that was, you know, uh, the papal church at the time, right? So you can see how these ideas are kind of built in there. But the fact that, you know, we're talking about the 1700s and we're now in 2020 and we're still arguing for one law for all that is based on secular and civil law rather than unchangeable divine law is just, you know, we have to really move on from that. Yeah, it sounds reductive on both sides in that sense. And therefore very harmful, but we'll come on to that later, um, I think. And so just, you know, this this ideological polarization, either or, religion or secularism, you know, for me exists at the level of dogmatic ideas as critical religion scholars have kind of highlighted. Just lastly to say that, you know, the, the key thing that's emerged from that, which comes back to where we started, is that religion then becomes relegated to the backward, irrational past. So that history is important because it's, it's religion is always stuck in this past, whereas the secular is modern. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I, I think as somebody who is, is visibly religious as well in the sense of, you know, wearing hijab, I think that's always something that's very apparent to me is that really the only way I can remove myself of my backwardsness or prove myself to be modern is to actually forego religion. Like you can't be both. And I think, you know, I work with kids a lot and, and like a kind of, you know, beginning of high school age. 
And something that comes up when you talk about the stereotypes that they might face as being Muslim children in particular, um, lots of children recognize that because of the fact that they are Muslim, they are seen to kind of need to prove that they can fit the norms of the society they're in or that they can, uh, or that they are, in fact, you know, it is that notion of being, you know, intelligent. I think that's bound up with modernity as well. This idea that if you're not, if you're religious, how can you be clever? Because, you know, you're you believe in all this, as you said earlier, like supernatural, you know, you're in cha- you, you've got this enchantment where you're kind of, you, you, you're just believing in things without logic, without rationality, without reason. And, you know, just, I think it's always interesting for me that kids pick up on that even at that age and how, how insidious, I suppose, that is. It's not just like a political doctrine that's like really theoretical. It seeps into the really embodied knowledge of, of children. And I think what you've said there also hits at something else for me, which is that, you know, this is a really specific history that you're telling. This is like very, very localized to Europe um, and to a really certain set of events, I assume, like certain political leanings as well. You know, we want freedom from the church and the papacy. We want to be able to have our own sovereignty. And I think that's, it's then fascinating to think about today where secularism is seen to be a universal good and that, you know, anywhere you go in the world, there should be this same set of kind of social organizing. Otherwise people are doing things not only wrong, but badly and probably in a way that also deserves Western intervention, right? Like this becomes a grounds upon which to, you know, kind of make or justify, you know, imperialist ventures and these kinds of things. So I guess something that, that I always try to think about with these episodes is, you know, whose terms are these? And I think you've answered that really clearly. These are not um, everybody's terms, these are very specific terms. And something that um, in your book, The Religion of Law, you say is that religion is a modern term from within Orientalist scholarship during the 19th century and the 20th centuries. Um, and you say the study of world religion as a kind of category was set up to document the lives of non-Christians and non-European peoples. And so I just wondered if I could ask you a little bit as well about this, this what you're talking about, Orientalism and kind of Europe and non-Europeans here, just in terms of whether this is also quite a racialized um, category and how it maybe is tangled up with colonialism in that sense. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, you know, just to kind of clarify the term Orientalism, which of course many people will be familiar with, but in my work I'm specifically drawing on the work of um, the late Edward Said and, um, you know, at that time, there is no religion. It's just race. It's just what is not uh, white Europeanness uh, and therefore non-Christian, right? So it's in the encounter of uh, Europe's others through um, travel, trade, and then later on colonial colonialism and empire that, um, of course, the colonial administrators and academics, so, you know, knowledge producers, teachers, scholars, need to understand um, what it is they're encountering. Who are these people? Are they indeed people at all? Uh, You know, if we're going to start right at the bottom, um, how can we understand how they're behaving? Is this the same? They they look like they're worshipping, but is it the same as Christian worship? What are they believing in? And actually, you know, what was what was one of the most fascinating things that I discovered was within academia, the first um, kind of set of categorizations was happening around um, language. So how can we categorize the languages that are that people are speaking in the different areas of the world? Um, And it was from. Uh, there that then you get kind of the study of, you know, the belief systems, the practices, and so on and so forth. But what is common to all of this study, you know, that was kind of early anthropology and uh, early language studies, because we didn't have all the different disciplines that we do now that you find in universities now, it was much more kind of streamlined. So you'd get kind of religion and language in the same area in the same departments, theology. Um, and what was common to it all is this idea of the need to categorize. How do we categorize these people? And of course, when you start categorizing, you already have a premise from which you are wanting to categorize. And the premise was Christian whiteness, right? 
So what is Christianity? That's the first question we have to understand. And Christianity uh, in theological terms is understood as or was understood at that time as a belief system coupled with ritual practices in order to kind of deepen that belief system, right? So going to church, um, reading the Bible, singing hymns, so on and so forth. Um, and so that's the view from which we're on, you know, everything else is being understood. And that's why, you know, you get this kind of theological framing of everything else from the other monotheistic faiths to, you know, the practices in what are now, I can't remember the exact number, but maybe 56 countries in Africa uh, and all the different, you know, languages and practices there as well as elsewhere in the world. I mean, it's actually quite, it's quite an undertaking, I have to say. The fact that it was done is quite mind boggling. But, you know, of course, it's happening over, you know, three three or more centuries. But it also kind of smacks of a bit of hubris as well and and therefore reductiveness, you know. It's like the or- the Orientalist idea is that, you know, the, the Christian West is the apex of civilization and everything else is kind of then categorized and judged. I mean, that's the other, the kind of corollary of, categorizes that it's and then judged against that standard that benchmark yeah that's so helpful because i I think actually i was just going to say with what you're saying there's also a certain arrogance to that undertaking right like this assumption that you can in fact you know make meaning out of or understand these things and so just to clarify what you're saying i take it is that you know these these scholars, these researchers, whatever, these anthropologists were essentially projecting onto every type of behavior and practice that they saw other people around the world do a specific framework. And, and I'm assuming this is where we get the notion that, you know, when you, when you read texts from the 1700s, 1800s um, talking about Muslim countries, for example, they call them like Mohammedan countries, right? Taking the notion of like Christ and Christendom and then using that with Muhammad. And then, you know, the idea of like Muslim priests and um, Muslim churches. And and I think I've I've sort of always wondered, I, or I always used to wonder like what on earth is that, you know, why were they using this bizarre language? But this makes sense now. You're sort of saying there's a projection and a, and a confinement of, of, of to understand what these people are doing, but not on their own terms. Like it doesn't sound almost like anyone's really going to any efforts to ask, what is it that you're doing? What's going on here? Is this the same? And I think many people's contestation would be that, well, you know, Islam can't be really fit into the same ways because it's such a different, or, or because Islam is such a kind of holistic religion. And, and, and even then, you know, there's people I'm sure who are Christian who would feel that Christianity also shouldn't be confined to the way that it was. And a, a classic example, obviously, is Hinduism, right? Like this notion that Hinduism is just one monolithic religion um, when actually you know, I take it that what's now called Hinduism was just a set of like hundreds of different practices and kind of localized um, behaviors and, and, and religious practices. And so that kind of makes me feel that religion is also a very unhelpful term. Like it just sounds to, to kind of reduce everything to this one Europe centric notion of what is, what counts as religion, what doesn't. And I, I also wonder if this is linked and perhaps you can help us here to the notion of like, you know, you have the Abrahamic religions, which I suppose of all religious practices are most legitimate, but then also you have kind of, you know, superstition. And, you, you know, I think about the way that often like, um, quote unquote, African religions are categorized as sort of, that's just something complete, you know, it's not even within the realms of like legitimate religion. It's just some weird practices, you know, witchcraft and uh, sort of barbarism. And I think I see even there that categorization and that hierarchy that you're talking about and the judging. Um, so is that, am I understanding right in what I'm saying here? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, that whole period of history does itself a disservice, right? Because you can't even categorize Christianity in right. you know, <laughs> the diversity within Christianity in, in this kind of one word. Um, I mean, there's a beautiful quote in um, a book that I read by someone called Hent de Vries, and he and I quote it in my own work, and he says, you know, religion is like a cinematic still that kind of captures, can't capture that one moment, can only capture that one moment, and then before it then moves on to the next, and then it's something different again. That's really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, so that's why you're totally right. It is an unhelpful word. And actually, it's not just unhelpful, it's actually, you know, dangerous. 
So one example that immediately comes to my mind um, right now is when I teach my students about the Haitian Revolution and we look at the kind of um, impact of independence for Haiti from France at the time, whereby France had to, uh, well, they levied this uh, debt um, because they thought that because Haiti and Haitians had gained independence and taken their colony away from them, they actually had to pay for this property. Yeah, it's mind boggling. And um, so in 2010, when they suffered this horrific earthquake, um, and calls were made to kind of off, you know, write off the debt, and in fact, help and send aid to Haiti, this, this whole kind of debate resurfaced. And we look at some of the media coverage. And one of the things that comes up is like, oh, look at these Haitians, you know, they're, they're voodoo worshippers, they're superstitious. It's almost like, you know, the, the earthquake is, they brought it on themselves, and they of help. You know, it's really, really horrific. And that is racialization of religion. That's how I refer to it. Seeing it as something that is backward and in, inhuman, not human almost. Yeah. You know, and that actually, yeah. Sorry, I just jump in really quick. It reminds me of something I read recently. And it was, um, I think, Lord Cromer, who was like this big colonizer, I guess, at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s. I think it was him that he'd written something about how Christians that you found in the Middle East, um, their Christianity had been tainted by the fact that they were of that race or surrounded by that race that was other. And I think that for me is another example where it's like, hang on, there's two things going on here. You're, you're trying to you know, defend that Christianity is still pure and superior, but what you're seeing there is a raced Christianity. And therefore that's why it's wrong, not because of the religion, but because of the race of that religion. And I think that's, yeah, I just, I thought I also see that in a parallel that even if I wonder, even if Haitians, you know, were to be Christian or were to be uh, other than, I think that racialization would still be that they would be doing it, you know, in a corrupt way. Totally. And this goes right. I mean, I just have to tell you a little anecdote of something that I've read because it's so mind-boggling and totally on that point. And that is that, um, so I think it's Mars and Brown have written about this in their book and they t- it's a beautiful historic um, overview and it goes right as far back as the medieval period. So we often kind of think about, you know, uh, the Enlightenment period, 17th, 18th century coloniality, but actually right back to the Crusades, where Crusaders going from Europe to, you know, the um, quote-unquote holy lands are not able to distinguish between Christians, Jews, and Muslims and mm. watering them all, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's really fascinating. Uh, watering them all because they're all racialized as the other, the native. Yeah, I mean, it's just... That, and, and actually, just in parallel, that reminds me of a lecture that I um, attended where um, the scholar was was also kind of outlining how, you know, at what point um, Jew, Jews in the Middle East were kind of differentiated um, and how they became co-opted into this narrative of being somehow linked to Europe, Europe-ness rather than Muslimness, and that you know he he was kind of pointing out that this notion that like when we say Muslims are the new Jews, it makes no sense because actually Muslims and Jews were Muslims were the old Jews, the old Jews were Muslim kind of thing, and and that whole co-option was about racializing Jews to, and even you see in the paintings he was showing us, you know, the, the whitening of Jews uh, and Jewish women in the Middle East and kind of. Where they, you know, both Muslim and um, Jewish women would be represented in the same way as kind of just like veiled figures. It was now this changing of dress where Jewish women appeared to be more European, and and I think that, yeah, again, it's I guess just another inflection of what you're talking about. Absolutely, and if people are interested in that, the work of uh, someone called Gilles Anijar, uh, he's written a book, a fantastic book uh, called Semites, where he totally breaks that binary down. Um, so yeah, for sure. And, and that's so important in these days, right? Where racialization of religion is just, it knows no bounds. Um, and we have to, we have to really pay attention to that so that, you know, we can mobilize against it. Yeah. Can I, so can I also take this to perhaps the internalization of this idea too, because something that I have experienced and I think others experience is that, you know, when you're growing up and you're unable to necessarily pick apart what's being told to you, I think as people who, you know, let's put it as simply as believe there's a God, right? That you believe you're a created being. Um, 
I think you also internalize this notion of what religion is and what it means and what it means to be religious. And so for me, I kind of now see that as I secularized my religion, right? So I kind of had this notion of separation of space, even so. Um, and I think for me, a really big moment was when I began to wear um, a headscarf to school and everyone was kind of like, okay, what's going on here? For, for many, I think there's so many other connotations and reasons around that that are obviously really gendered. But also I think just around like, okay, what? Like we thought you were a really clever girl at school. We thought you were really smart. Like now you're kind of showing and symbolizing your attachment to this really backwards thing. And I think, I wonder if, you know, the way that the hijab and niqab, I guess, across Europe, there were all these bans, there were all these, you know, um, narratives about how really this this symbol, more than anything else, perhaps, reflects a, a real threat to secularism and to the values of, of the West. And I think about, you know, in, in France, the ban that means that, you know, if you're a teacher or you work in public education, you're not allowed to quote unquote have any religious symbols. And so the argument is this, well, this works equally for people who want to wear a cross, but how we know that there is a real specific targeting of Muslims within that. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how secularism and religion, this binary is also somehow weaponized in quite a specific way against Muslims. And I find that kind of difficult to articulate sometimes, but it's like, I think, you know, I'm just seeing you nod as well. Like we, we know this to be true. We can see it in the impact of sort of legislation of it. Um, but what's going on there? And is there also a history to that? Yeah, well, I think it emerges from this kind of what I need, what I feel it has become a kind of embedded impulse to civilize, right? It's the, it, I mean, we can't underplay that because you know the level of missionarism is is across the world is i mean it, that's uh, you know before we get attacked for it it's not obviously only uh specific to christianity but when in this particular period and if we're talking about it in terms of um levels of power or or um dominance and ideology then that's that's what we're talking about you know we're we're still very much bound by this idea of um civilizing our populations to be secular moderns uh that's what it was you know from the crusades to gather the holy lands back um from these you know marauding racialized hordes to today and we see that you know in terms of kind of protection of churches and protection of public space um and those public spaces include schools and so you mentioned you know the symbols and there's uh, a recent case that went all the way up to the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, it's actually um, an Italian case that we often talk about France and we don't talk about Italy. And it's and I find it really interesting because in that case, the judges decided that, um, so it was brought by a mum who uh, complained about there being this crucifix in the kind of central hallway of the school at the front um, and so the discussion was about this symbol and kind of what work is this symbol doing in a secular school environment? And the judgment was, well, this is pretty much a passive symbol, right? Ah, uh, interesting. Yeah, Language. Yeah, yeah. Crucifix, but the active hijab. <laughs> <laughs> right? And the work that the hijab can do is, you know, as we know from the context of France, we don't have to kind of repeat that, is extremism writ large and and all the other things that they're attributing to it, you know, in particular the most recent beheading of the teacher in France. Um, so it, it, it is weaponized and it does come from that particular civilizing mission um and alongside it is this is this kind of um yeah legislative policy uh trend or agenda i should say uh to create you know what has been termed the good muslim the progressive muslim uh versus the the extremist or bad muslim so, you know, the creation of this other binary within the kind of modern 21st century context. So, you know, those wearing hijabs can kind of overcome the backwardness that sticks to their hijab by displaying other factors. 
you know, so maybe, you know, what university you went to, what job you have or other kind of external things, markers, signifiers of your modernity so that you can kind of separate yourself from your backwardness that comes with your religious identity. And, you know, it, but it's not clear. So I don't want to make kind of grand statements about, you know, one set of agendas because there's a real kind of, and I talk about this in my work, there's a real kind of anxiety because the project of civilizing the racialized is never really complete. There's always this anxiety. It comes out in judgments. It comes out in, um, you know, the, the discourse and the narratives of government ministers, including ministers of color, right? Um, um, and so it's never a complete project. And so you you will get this kind of desire for what I call racial upliftment, in, including within schools with British values and and all that goes with that, um, and universities as well now with the kind of you know trying to tackle attainment gaps um, to 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 get over this kind of cultural deficit that people of color are deemed to have, um, but it's never really complete, and that's why you get these extra retrogressive um, moves, whether that be in court decisions, policy, even today with the deportation of yet another Jamaica 50. I mean, it's just, it's grim. It is. And I I think what you've just said there is a really important point because I think one of the big impetuses for me behind kind of breaking lots of these binaries down is that when we do it, I think we also see the perhaps the futility of trying to fit the right side, right? And you know what you just said about good Muslim, bad Muslim, but also with assimilation being kind of offered as this project that if you fulfill it, you know, provisionally you will be accepted, you'll be, you know, you're you're all in, we're we're here for you. And yeah, at the same time, as you say, it's never really made clear at what stage you will fulfill it and like what how far you have to go to do it. Um and I think that, you know, I remember even reading um the Louise Casey report into social integration, quote unquote, in uh, I think it came out in like 2016, 17. And in that, there was this line that really stuck out to me where she said, going back to what you're talking about with British values being taught in schools, she said that in areas where there are higher concentrations of ethnic minorities, British values were less likely to be um, known and they would need to be taught as compared with areas where there were, you know, white people, basically. And what I found interesting there was that she didn't say where there's high concentrations of white people, they would also need to be taught. Because what that said to me was that there's an idea that it's inherent. If you're white, British values are kind of, you're kind of born with them. They're in you. It's like a kind of, you know, part and parcel of who you are. And if you're an ethnic minority, they need to be taught. But then the question becomes, I guess, at what point can you be trusted to know them, right? When is it that you actually, we can leave you alone, stop surveilling and checking that you have them within you and you just become, you know, that full quote unquote assimilated citizen. And so I think that I just wanted to emphasize that point that you said, because I think for me, the project then becomes, well, hey, we can kind of wash our hands of this um you know, this burden to prove that we fall on the correct side of of any of these binaries, because the more interesting question I I find um, is to ask what the function of that project even is and who it serves. And so, so saying that, I actually want to bring us into that final part of this podcast where you know, you've already given us, I guess, many examples of of how and what is served by this binary. But I suppose, um, you know, I recently was reading um, Sabah Mahmoud's work. um, And one of the arguments she made was that, you know, religious liberty and tolerance, um, even kind of up until the 1948 um, Universal Human Rights Declaration, where religious liberty is defined, um, it's comes about as a result of the lobbying of Christian missionaries, um, who kind of want to be be able to have that clause in there because they're thinking about religious liberty as a reason to justify missionary intervention that would kind of be on the basis that, you know, actually any, everybody is allowed their liberty. But this is actually at the time, she says, if I recall correctly, um, a kind of attack on particularly like former Ottoman Empire, but also the kind of larger Muslim world or non-Christian world where it's seen to be a a justification for making interventions there. And so, I mean, you've given us other examples as well, but I guess this bias or this um, function of secularism, religious liberty, tolerance, um, it it seems to be in the past very clearly to do with kind of imperialism and and civilizing missions and kind of justifying those. 
But I wanted to ask maybe what, what that binary continues to do. What might help us to understand why we cling so tightly to this binary? Um, and I guess I'm just thinking about those listeners who for whom this is maybe a, a shocking revelation. <laughs> you know, w- w- the question I suppose they might be left with is then why, you know, why does it seem to hold so much weight? You know, why is it that we associate tolerance with secularism and, and not with religion, for example? In one word, capitalism. <laughs> People, please read uh, Cedric Robinson's <laughs> Racial Capitalism or any work on racial capitalism. Uh, you know, it, we only have to go back to um, Weber, who wrote The Protestant Work Ethic. And actually, I've been thinking um, I want to go back to some of that work because it's really fascinating how at this period uh, in the 17th, 18th century, um, with the division between Christian uh, between Catholicism and Protestantism, there's this idea of labor as a kind of Christian Protestant practice. So there's all this there's whole body of work that is yet to be that I'm yet to explore around how that becomes kind of almost imbibed, embodied into you know what Weber calls the, the Protestant work ethic, which creates right um, modern capitalism, and you know we only have to think about you know favorite brands who who has Cadbury's chocolate, who who has Quaker's oats, <laughs> yeah. So there's yeah, and and where I talk about the kind of racial upliftment of children into good citizens through this kind of uh, notion of British values, which are just so ridiculous. I mean, they're 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 for performance, right? We have to perform them. They're they're there so that we can pass or as the young people these days call it code switching um you know um and that is also part of performing being a productive capitalist citizen so that we can fit within you know the capitalist framework uh that is the modern liberal or neoliberal even state um yeah so that's a bit of a somewhat of a wacky response to your (laughs) question <laughs> but, uh, I think it's a really important response because I don't. I, I think there's a way in which secularism and religion are presented as, I suppose, non-political or kind of that they're not linked to these maybe systemic political factors in the world because the these are grander terms, right? These are about the like neutrality of of our lives, and I think you know there's always this notion that secularism is the home of toleration and religion is not. And, and, you know, thinking about what we've spoken about today, it's very clear that secularism is full of intolerance. You know, sort of the premise of it is is to be deeply intolerant. Um, But I think this link to capitalism actually brings out a really important point, which is that perhaps it is, perhaps when we talk about, you know, within that binary, oh, religion is the source of all violence. There's a really big oversight, I think, of the role of capitalism in causing violence and in fact being rooted in violence and so perhaps there's also a way that this binary keeps us from bringing our gaze to what you just brought it to you know i don't think capitalism is ever centered in that way in this conversation and it's never seen as a perpetrator of the kind of harms of the modern world that we live in Mm -hmm. absolutely no i agree and you know we if we want to pay more attention to it we can just see what trumps um religion in order to make us more kind of uh, palatable. Um, So, you know, you talked about uh, the hijab, but I'm just thinking about, you know, being queer. And and I can't be queer and Muslim. Well, I am actually, (laughs) you know, Um, but often my queerness trumps my Muslim identity. Um, And because I'm not wearing a hijab anymore. Um, And... um, and even with quits, like LGBT is now, you know, the thing that is kind of trumping or in fact erasing queer because lesbian gay is kind of, you know, associated with the capitalist pink pound, those that, you know, have demanded and gained equality, same sex marriage. It's not, it doesn't bring class and other social relations of marginalization or, or you know, uh, poverty and etc. into it, um, and so again, it just always capitalism so clever. It's like a chameleon that is able to kind of camouflage and hide itself, right? 
but it's very much at the heart of religion, uh, and particularly in this country as well. Yeah, I think even if you think about globally, uh, I guess thinking about the ways that capitalism often become, and I think it's it's actually really valid to say, is often kind of seen as as a god over god in that sense that we have Muslim states and, and governments, so called, who are happy to comply with really violent kind of global um, policies or US foreign policy or kind of buying or trading arms or other kinds of really nefarious deals in the name of capitalism when it directly would contradict, you know, if you were to really think about what it means to be Muslim in terms of submission to Allah. And so that, I think, is another example of how yeah, capitalism, I feel, has also managed to reproduce for us religion as well. And kind of even, you know, thinking about that really recent news story about Muslim Pro, that this app that loads of Muslims had to kind of keep track of like prayer times. Um, and the fact that the data was being sold to military intelligence. I mean, th- you then see there's this like whole network and kind of global system within which Actually, religion itself, I think, is deliberately repackaged to us. And even just thinking about, you know, Muslim um, influences, right? Like what it means to be a Muslim suddenly becomes very bound up also with what conveniently is kind of branding yourself, becoming, um, you know, a a marketing tool. And I think within all of that, um, almost in the same, you know, kind of reflecting what you're saying, where the state and capitalism kind of co-opt, like which queer people or which women they want to kind of suggest are the ones deserving of life. I think in the same way you see that with, um, you know, these kind of influencers and these kinds of Muslim states that are the correct ones. They're appropriate and they're fitting, and we can live with them in quite happy. You know, you've got that picture of Donald Trump with the those like Muslim leaders around him with that really like <laughs> I don't know spooky looking um, ball, crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah, I just think there's a real way in which capitalism also from, a, I suppose, like a, a divine epistemology has become one of the idols of our times, has become, you know, one of these false gods that we kind of worship, I suppose, instead of of a worship that I understand to be one that leads us to bettering the lives of one another, being these social creatures who kind of put one another's humanity above um, <laughs> capital accumulation, basically. Absolutely. And, you know, Gosh, I mean, I know this example is bounded around a lot, but the fact that we supply arms, you know, the Britain supplies arms to Saudi Arabia, who then, you know, bombs people in Yemen, uh, it, 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 uh, I can never really get over that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just even painful to think about. Yeah, yeah. And then also, I guess, how we all become complicit in all of these systems as, as people who, you know, how can we extract ourselves from them? I think, yeah. I think that's a really helpful um, way of thinking about this as well, or I guess just a note to bring us to a conclusion. I wanted to ask maybe a question that I think people listening or, you know, people going about their daily lives maybe feel forced into thinking about, which is, you know, okay, yeah, you're a religious person, fine, but, you know, are you pro or are you against secularism? I think this kind of becomes a question that you're asked to kind of prove, as you've said, like whether you're um, an acceptable citizen. Um, And I just wondered, you know, or perhaps this does link to the concluding question, you know, what's a better way that we can go about thinking about our world beyond whether we are pro or against secularism? Um, Yeah. What would you suggest? I don't know, maybe it's the teacher in me, but I always kind of tend to answer that sort of question with another question, which is what do you mean by secularism? Uh, what do you mean by religion, you know, and then get them to unpack themselves. Because if they're talking about disestablishment or the separation of church and, and state, or if they're talking about law that is not coming from a, a, a religious body, so, okay, we don't, we no longer have ecclesiastical law, but there's many studies out there, including my own work that looks at judgments you know, and I've written a piece which is entitled after um, a quote from a judge who um, who quite openly in his judgment said, as a white judge, I do not understand. <laughs> you know? um, so these things are not certain. We, we kind of try to think of them. We, I mean, I totally get the kind of impulse for, and the desire for certainty. But I don't know, maybe if you 
do are you know fortunate enough to grow up with faith and you kind of get trained because I do see it as a kind of training in you know different way of thinking um then you can cope with uncertainty more and, and especially when uncertainty is often kept with in the domain of you know the um the atheists or the agnostics um but actually uncertainty is a huge act of faith for me anyway and i think it's kind of in embracing that and really interrogating ourselves about on what these terms actually mean um that we can then engage in other you know other ways of thinking other ways of imagining other forms of activism and this is not utopian what i'm talking about because there are so many brilliant things happening out there that are not you know espousing the terms secular or religion they're being much more accurate about what they mean yeah that's a really beautiful kind of reflection actually and i think particularly what you're saying about be it being perhaps like a, a prompt or a jump point for us to to be building the kinds of worlds or societies we want to live in and you know one reflection i just wanted to share with listeners as well um was about the way that um you know oftentimes something i've noticed is a lot of conversations and actually yours probably being the the exception i know that conferences i've been to that they're organized by you i felt very differently about but a lots of the kind of spaces that i've been in where people are, are purportedly talking about decolonizing knowledge or decolonizing institutions um i feel like secularism is the one bastion of colonialism that they don't want to or haven't really thought to decolonize. And it, I feel that in those spaces as a visibly Muslim woman, you become really um, sought after for your kind of racialized identity, but nobody wants to talk about the fact that you you believe in this epistemology of knowledge that is sourced from Allah, that it comes from you know, that's still seen to be a bit embarrassing, right? That's a little bit of your kind of um, quote unquote uncivilized baggage that you're carrying with you. And I think there really needs to be a conversation here as well. If we're talking about building an alternative world, if we're talking about, you know, abolition of the structures that we know cause harm, harm and violence, I think we need to have a really serious conversation about the attachment to secularism and how that attachment means we're never really going to be letting go of the impact and the kind of harm of colonialism and colonial modernity on not only the world, but also on who we can be to our fullest extent within our own psyches, within our own kind of emotional and physical bodies. And that's just a reflection that I feel, you know, I don't know what that next conversation is, but it's a conversation I feel needs to be had and taken really seriously. And, I, I'm, and that's why I was really excited also by, excited about the prospect of talking to you about this, because I know that you're kind of able to have both those conversations in a much more nuanced way. And it's why I think I feel it's safe to have this conversation um, and I think, you know, yeah, I, I just think when we're thinking about building those those different worlds that we want and, and dismantling those structures of, of violence, we have to kind of think about all the things we might be overlooking. Absolutely. And, you know, I totally agree with you, Suhaim. I think that um, uh, it's so important to acknowledge um, that it's it's not easy, it's difficult, and I think that's something that, you know, secularism and and even the kind of the way the term people who use the term religion as if it's something truth, a truth in and of itself, natural, instinctive, that to ask them to revisit its certainty and its truth to them is is dangerous for them because it could be unraveling. It asks them to unravel not just the knowledge systems, but themselves and actually, it reminds me of, you know, because you know that I've been um, academically for uh, decolonizing the curriculum movement uh, with my students at my university. And it reminds me of the kind of workshops and trainings we've done with staff and, and others. And actually, we, we, we created a set of principles. And, you know, number one was to kind of check our own privileges and where we're at and and then to kind of listen and read and, you know, before kind of reacting uh, to be reflective and just to see people engage with that and how they struggle with it rather than immediately kind of think, oh, yeah, you've given me an off the shelf answer. I can now run with that. Uh, we're, we're constantly in a rush. Right. And we don't want to reflect. That's just not the way 
we've been educated in this country. We we are so sure that there are solutions to everything. There are ways to, you know, know and act and, and that there's an outcome and the outcome is productivity. Um, and so this is a real challenge to the very core of um, ourselves as a society, humanity, and what it means to be human. And I think, you know, with COVID, it's the perfect time to kind of engage in that further reflection because it's all that's, linked, you know. Definitely. And that's, yeah, that's such a beautiful note to end on, I think, that actually we can embrace that uncertainty and that we recognise it is a difficult journey. And in fact, you know, if anything, that's where I place this podcast, right, in those uncertainties and trying to find where we might find ourselves after breaking down these different binaries. So, Sarah, I just want to say thank you so much. This has actually been a really uh, expansive and wonderful conversation and I'm just really honoured that you shared this time with me. So, yeah, thank you. So, Hamel, as always, (laughs) happy to talk about religion and secularism anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking Binaries. I hope you, like me, can take something from our guest this week. Look out for episodes fortnightly, and if you enjoy, please share. The music you've been hearing is made by an old high school friend that came through, so shout out to Violence Jack at, at GetViolenceJack online. Thanks to all my guests for chatting to me every week and helping us think a little more critically, and I hope, humbly, about our world. I do believe that part of the way we transform the world is by transforming the ways we think about it. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Sahima Mansul Khan. Bye.